Welcome to the Social Justice War Room, the podcast where we look at social justice and fiction, reality, and everything in between. My guest t- today is a very honored guest. I've known him a while. He's taught me a lot, both literally and figuratively. He was the director of programs at the late Meltdown Comics in LA, where he taught a lot of classes about comic book production. He's been an editor, a writer, and a consultant of pretty much everything around the industry. I can't even know where to begin. Anyway, please welcome Jim Higgins. How are you doing, Jim Sensei? Uh, yes, I, I did some workshops for a bunch of uh, Jap- for Japanese films. And the, the, the people, I got called Jim Sensei there, which is <laughs> funny you, you said that. So I, res- I respond well to it, yeah. Good. I'm good, you know. Um, uh, you know, considering under the circumstances. Yes, the circumstances. That certainly doesn't come up on this podcast much. <laughs> but so I, when I met you, it was like 2010, 2009. And mm-hmm. I just moved to LA after finishing my master's degree. And you, it obviously, it feels like a much different world back then, but I learned a lot from you. And you did. I was in your mini comic workshop where I ended up producing like an eight page satire of what if Michael Bay did a Pokemon movie. That was oh, I forgot that. That's right. It was really funny. Thank you. And since then, it feels like the comics industry is in a radically different place and in some ways not. How does that, looking back and looking forward, how do you assess the way things have gone since? It's, it's the biggest change has been the massive shifting around of uh, who's at what distributor. So for the longest time, Diamond was essentially a monopoly when it came to comics, um, you know, comics and comic shops. Um, If I'm not mistaken, someone from the Justice Department actually came sniffing around to see whether um, Diamond was an actual technical uh, uh, monopoly. And apparently, because comics are considered magazines, so, you know, Diamond could say, well, you know, we're distributing comic books, but we don't have a, we don't have a stranglehold on the magazine market. I mean, I think that's how I remember. I think that's how it went. But, you know, now we're in a situation where once the pandemic hit, you know, the two new distributors just, you know, popped up. And um, I'm, I'm annoyed. I'm going to remember, I'm forgetting which one, that, but the, the big, big, big um, book publisher, distributor, uh, one of the biggest is, is picked up Marvel. Um, and then I don't know the state of one of the new ones. And I think DC has also just changed. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not up on my uh, specific facts there, but it's a big, big change. Um, and the fallout is not really uh, apparent yet. Um, uh, I should go talk, well, you should maybe, Neil, talk to some comics retailers because they're the ones who are really, you know, trying to stay stay up to date on all this stuff. Yeah, um, it does feel but, like things move very quickly and a lot of cases, it's because these huge market forces act and don't have any interest in how everyone trying to make a living and said market will react. Well, I have to tell you, as someone who you know worked retail for five years and have been around retailers since then, um, I got to say, Diamond, you know, Diamond, they they, uh, I don't want to be as nasty as to say they get what they deserve, but they, you know, they made this bed for themselves. They have been a often very problematic because they were the only game in town. They, you know, they were often just you know, weren't as good as they needed to be, as they could be. They, uh, they did a lot of things that, that really frustrated a lot of comics retailers. 
Yeah. And I think if they were, you know, if they were a swell, really well done organization, I think it would, it would, it'd be a different world right well, now. It's like, is diamond going to be in business in, in two years? That's, that's my question. One thing digital comics became a big thing, not self-published web comics only, but like stuff like comiXology selling through online theaters on any device. And as of this writing, the merger of comiXology into Amazon has largely completed and resulted in a lot of people who'd subscribed in different regions not now not being able to get their books that they bought and those even those who have finding a lot of hassles reading comics on kindle which is good so it does feel like a similar case because amazon is obviously a monopolistic force that controls everything yep the 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 thing about um I don't know. I, I, I think I actually was asking, uh, posted this like literally yesterday. I, I don't know if the comicsology brand is gone because a lot of times when these kind of things happen, they bring, they buy a company, they keep it around for a while and then eventually they fold it into itself. So, you know, it's kind of like as if it was never there. Um, I know that creators and small, I'm sorry, small publishers are really frustrated because apparently they have to re-upload like, some of some of their or a lot of their work or all their work like manually it's some bizarre you know uh repercussion of of this switch which just you know seems like like what the hell you know nobody's whoever was in amazon doing this you know was really not really giving much of a shit about it sounds like to me likely that's usually the way these things go and since we're looking back, there has been a vast expansion of like not comics besides the big two and superheroes in that time. And mm-hmm. it's, you can see how things like The Walking Dead opened a lot of doors, but not everyone seems to get that opportunity. It's like just because someone proves you can build a kind of empire off of a creator-owned comics property doesn't mean there's a lot of people who will be able to even break even doing that so I think one of the things that people don't realize is that there's a lot of image comics that are hey it's great they're creator-owned but they don't necessarily sell very well um and they may just be barely you know scraping by um so but uh to me, the thing that that has been probably the biggest change in the market in the last 10 years is uh, is the comics for young readers, the graphic novels for young readers. Um, that is one of the fastest growing parts of the book business in general. And, you know, it, it's, it, you know, the people like Raina Telgemeier and Smile and all her other books and Kazu Kabuishi with Amulet, yeah. they were the first Hi. ones to. Yeah, they were hold the on f- a second. Hi. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I'll, I'll talk. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go on. It's okay. Um, they were sort of the first big ones that were selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And I think Raina has nine books out, and she sold 11 million copies of her books. So she's a rock star. And, and there's been, you know, I think. I don't know exact numbers for Amulet, but I know that he's probably in the millions too. Uh, and for example, how, how is this manifesting? The Barnes and Noble near me two years ago put in a graphic novels for kids section, right? Within two months, it, it was a relatively small, like one sectional, you know, one section uh, of a bookshelf. Within two months, there was an entirely, there was a second one entirely, you know, filled with comics. And then about six months later, there was a third. So this is huge, you know, and um, it's, 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 it's been building for a long time. So another offshoot of that, I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but is that we're seeing a lot of creators now 
who have, you know, when they were reading comics, they were reading comics for young readers, manga and web comics. They're not even near the, you know, not even near the comics only publishers. So that's good to know. And I guess when you have students for your different classes that you see different sets of influences, like they're not trying to make the next Batman or Spider-Man. They're trying to make the next amulet. They're trying to, you know, make the next thing that they want to do. It, it's yeah. I mean, uh, it's, I mean, just every class I do, there's always some people, sometimes most of them, who, who their comics reading is, uh, as I just described, you know, and I'm, I, I know things are changing and I'm hearing it in people's uh, more than I, than I did, but I am so sick of listening to people who buy you know, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, et cetera, in a comic book store, talk about the comics business and just not even talk about the rest of the other stuff, which is selling much more, you know, than, than the, the direct market comic stuff. And I this isn't say, just like the comics gate reactionary guys. No, no, no. This is the average person who shops in a comic shop and it has television, you know, um, and look, even the most diehard, like I don't want to carry anything that's not Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, even those stores have shelves now devoted to, to young readers' graphic novels because there's so many of them and they get asked about them, you know? Yeah. So to go into your experience, you've been in within the pu publishing business as an editor at DC. And mm -hmm. I remember you brought so, some samples of things you worked on, like when DC Vertigo was doing those big books of. That was just, that was Paradox Press was the, the line was called. And then, uh, yeah, we did the, the big book line. There were 17 of them. Uh, and each one was the big book of something. So we did the big book of urban legends, the big book of, um, weirdos just biographies of really fascinating people from like you know Caligula to Rasputin to William Burroughs um and then we did the big book of losers which is one of the funnier ones yeah and by 12 black and white short stories non-fiction with a few exceptions of the book we did a, the big book of Grimm which was Grimm's fairy tales but almost all the books were basically non-fiction and you, it didn't look like anything DC published. And that was intentional. Um, so they were racked a lot of times. They, they, I think they occasionally would get racked with humor, which wasn't such a bad thing because the graphic novel section wasn't really, it wasn't that big then. So if I'm remembering right. So yeah, and then I, I, uh, I was there for six years from 94 to 2000. Um, Paradox also put out um, a line of mystery graphic novels, crime graphic novels that included um, Road to Perdition and uh, um, I'm blanking out, uh, something of violence, history of violence. Yeah. Uh, though both of those got made into successful feature films by really good directors. Uh, and then we, the, probably the, the, the gem of, of the biggest gem in the the crown is uh we published stuck rubber baby which is a um semi-autobiographical it's a graphic novel but it's very much based on um howard uh, cruz uh who wrote and drew it on his life um and experiences when he was like in his early 20s living down south and dealing with the fact that he he was gay in the, you know, in the 60s, it was not exactly a d easy thing to be dealing with, but he was also involved with the civil rights movement. And I think there were people there that he could come out to. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a magnum opus. It's a brilliant book. I think it's up there with Mouse in terms of both how good it is and how important it is in terms of just its effect on, it's, it's, it's recording of history through a per one person's, you know, eyes so yeah yeah and you've also done some independent anthologies like you had 
during some of the classes you had some of the new suit books of short stories for us to analyze. Yeah, I did two anthologies. Um, new suit is the imprint. The to make things confusing, I called the the anthologies new thing. So we had new thing um, uh, identity was the first one, and new thing secrets was the second volume. Not very big. There was only six stories per book, um, but uh, I got a, a a variety of people from uh, from from the U.S. Each book also had some some people from. Uh, from other countries. Um, and then I published a, a one off um, sort of short, almost storybook like um, comic uh, called Adventures of the Right Hand. And it's about a hand that gets tired of doing all the work for the body and just decides to <laughs> separate and go for a jaunt in the city. And it's, it's like part comics and part illustrated book it, it, it looks like a kid's book in terms of the format but uh um yeah so that was a lot of fun and Ujung An did that and she's just she's brilliant you know she's an illustrator she's back in in Korea now for many years but she did a great job that's good and in terms of the classes you've taught you've taught a very wide range of different topics regarding writing drawing the increasingly lost art of inking. Yes. For those who don't know, this is was a part of the comics production process that involved delineating pencil layouts with ink so that they would show up for production, which given the digital nature of comics creation and production in modern times has become less and less common, though I still see some of the big names like Brian Hitch have inkers they work with regularly. Yeah, it's it's like I have a feeling. I have a feeling. I I wonder if that that sort of split has has sort of leveled off in terms of you know people who are going to work digitally and people who are going to work on paper. Um, I get asked all the time. Well, all that stuff's done with computers, right? And I was like, I'm like, no. There's there's definitely a a, a bunch of people there who are. Uh, doing stuff on paper and not all of them are, you know, like been in the business for 20 or 30 years, you know? Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. Inking is, uh, I, I, I taught the inking class for a while and uh, yeah, it's rewarding. I would have people, a couple people took the class who did a lot of stuff um, digitally and wanted to learn to, to do it on paper. It's very, it's much more satisfying because it's so tactile and it's just, you know, there's a sort of detachment when you're working digitally that's not the case when you're working on paper and literally using a pen to scratch lines in or a brush to, you know, put some India ink all over it. Yeah, I know there's also people who do digital inking, but there's, there was also, because given how much this particular aspect fades. It's important to note that there were several inkers who had like an absolutely transformative effect on the pencilers they worked with. Who, who were you thinking of? I'm thinking of like Klaus Janssen. I was also the first a, one I thought of. <laughs> he's also a penciler, but it, he did inks for artists like Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. Right. as well as a lot of others. And he had like a, a kind of really expressive line and a really good sense of deep blacks for lighting that yes. definitely elevated whoever he worked on. I mean, I, it was weird that when I was at DC, I met Klaus and he was one of my favorite inkers from when I started reading comics when I was like 14 years old or you know, I started reading when I was 10. But I, I was probably... 13 or 14 when he was ink, he just started inking. And he just, like you said, his, he was like, it, it was like, uh, it was like finding a great suit of clothes to, 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 you know, put over, put on someone, you know, who, who everybody benefited from, from having, you know, class uh, ink them. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that um, a lot of the 
a lot of the details, or I should say a lot of the style and approach to the art in Dark Knight Returns, which Frank Miller drew when he inked, a lot of that is, is Klaus. Um, if you look at Klaus's other work, his pencil, when he's penciling and inking himself, and you look at some of Miller's stuff, especially back then, if you look at Ronin, which was, you know, doesn't look anything like uh, a Dark Knight, you can see that that was a real collaboration uh, in terms of art, you know? Um, so uh, what's I gonna say about Klaus? Um, Tom Palmer was the other one that in the, from the 70s till, I think he still occasionally does work, but he, the, these were people who just, you know, I think you said elevated and it's, it's really true. Tom Palmer and Gene Colan did something like 65 issues of the 70 issue run of Tomb of Dracula, which is one of the great comic book uh, uh, series because it, it, you know, predated Neil uh, Gaiman saying, well, I'm only going to do 75 issues of Sandman. They, they did cancel the book, but they knew it was coming. So Tomb of Dracula actually has an end. But that series was so distinctive looking because of the combination of, of Gene Colan's dynamic pencils with, you know, Palmer's just a lot, a lot like what you described Klaus as this, the really beautiful use of black and understanding lighting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I remember Tom Palmer also did work with John Buscema on the Avengers in the eighties and, that was another case where he elevated an already great artist. It's funny. I, I stopped reading superhero comics for quite a while. And then I, about five years ago, I was, I would be going through dollar bins and then seeing all these John Buscema and Tom Palmer things. And I was like, why did I stop reading? You know, so maybe someday I'll just binge out and go, you know, uh, try and fill all those blanks. Yeah. So one class that you, you've offered that, I wish I'd been around to take was how to write horror, just tying into the to tomb of Dracula. And that I admittedly, my knowledge of horror is kind of off and on, as is my interest in the genre. But it seems like so many great authors do of any medium do cross into horror. And it is there like a value in learning it, even if you don't plan on doing a horror comic or a horror movie, just to understand that kind of formal way of scaring the shit out of your audience? Um, I, I guess that, I guess you could do that, but I, you know, it really does seem like the type of thing that is really, you know, trying to get someone to understand a niche audience. Now, a niche audience like horror is in a very different place than it was, say, 10 years ago. There's a, a real renaissance in horror films. So, you know, before this happened, there was always tons of horror films that came out low budget and they were a lot like the majority of them were terrible. And now you've got things like um, um, The Witch and um, uh, It Follows and The Babadook and you know, on and on and on, all these fantastic films that are often very artful in their, you know, directing and presentation, and then very, very, you know, beautifully written. Um, I guess you could learn, you know, I mean, you can get anything out of, someone could take my horror class and use those, those uh, concepts and ideas to do something that's not necessarily horror. So I, I think that's that's true. But um, so, but I it, I think if you're going if you're going to go for horror, you know, it's 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 better it's better for that it's better for someone who's looking to go really into horror as a, as a screenwriter or as a, a comics writer. Yeah, the line seems to have blurred a bit given the process of adaptation being so successful for Hollywood and their comic-based movies and TVs. And you offer a service on your website where you help adapt screenplays? No, I, um, what I've, 
basically I've worked with some screenwriters um, on on their um, on their scripts, um, and I've occasionally I've worked on two films uh, as a writer, and you know neither of them got produced, which is not uncommon, you know. Um, uh, but uh, um, ask me again. You said something on my website. Um, yeah, it's in. You say that you can adapt someone's work into a comic script, get an artist to draw it, and see the graphic novel through every step from finished art to finished book. Okay, what what I get what I get a lot is um, screenwriters who are either working or television writers who are working professionally or aspiring screenwriters and television writers who take the class, my classes, so they can kind of have their work, you know, both um, appear and, and be able to have an audience, but also so they can, you know, either parlay that into, you know, getting uh, the story picked up by a, a TV or, or TV or movie people. Um, and there's a benefit to having it exist in another form because you have more control over the, the rights. If you go to, if, a, if you have a spec script and, you know, one of the studios say they want to buy it, they own, they're, you don't own nothing. You know, you, you just, you know, you, you're going to have to kiss that goodbye and they get to do whatever they want with it. Um, but at least you, if you have a comic, you're at least starting from the standpoint of you owning um, the copyright to it. And so, yeah. That seems to be how Mark Miller has made his empire, since it certainly wasn't for his deft and sensitive portrayal of human characters. Well, I, I, I tend to like a lot of his stuff, but he's got a brutal streak in there that, that you know, rears its head every so often. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, I think one of the things was is that he, he wrote a certain type of story that was this is going to sound weird, but a certain length in that, that, you know, some of these things that he did like wanted or, or, or some of the earlier, earlier things, they were, they were kick-ass. They were easy to translate into films because they were around the same length without having, so you didn't have to like, like a Stephen King novel, you have to gut, you know, to do a, a feature film out of. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Mark doing Miller, a Twitter look... review of Wanted the comic recently, and I can see why it was the the movie with James McAvoy, Angelina Jolie, and Morgan Freeman basically just takes the beginning and then goes in a completely different direction. But that's exactly right. That's that's how I I that's how I uh, described it too. You get about halfway in, and then it's nothing like that at all. And the beginning is very faithful to to the to the to the comic, but it that halfway through it, it goes its own way. Well, halfway through the the comic, it's basically just wallowing in the hedonism of this character who's like the heir to the worst supervillain ever, and him just being evil and doing a lot of violence and having a lot of sex without much content beyond like shaming the audience for identifying with him at the end <laughs> whereas the movie has, oh were you talking about the last page in the, in, in the, yes, the story this is yes. the look on my face it's i mean i gotta say whatever you want to say bad about it that absolutely blew me away i was like i don't think i've ever seen anybody do something quite like that um but I, you know, some of these things, I don't know, I, I, maybe I need to revisit some of these things. Um, but uh, I, I don't have the, I don't have the same feeling as you do as feeling that there's a sort of, I don't know, I don't want to throw the word gratuitous around. I know some people just use that for everything, but maybe, is that a word that you would, you would use here? Just like, it's sort of like, like sex and violence bait. Unquestionably, because Mark Miller has no problem having characters, especially female characters who are not the protagonists, be victims of sexual violence just to show how mean the bad guy is. Huh. Well, that's, that's, I did not notice that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was, um, 
it's always strange when you're talking about something something like that because there that this does exist in the world. So you know, like for example, like when Alan Moore, I forgot which story it was, whether it was um, might I don't know if it was Watchmen. It might have been Watchmen. I think where there's a rape scene. There is that was was that there is a rape scene in yeah. Watchmen, and that was so. That was something that was not done or touched at, on at that time. So at that time, it was, you know, at least to some people, it was like, wow, he 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 brought a a social issue into the the the, the story, a social problem into the story. But then, uh, on the other hand, you know, there were you know the women in refrigerators, yeah, people, like you know the killing off the killing off or having the the hero's girlfriend raped. You know, when you turn around and you, you know, you, you're like, it's happened this, 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 this. When it's a trend, yeah, you got to kind of step back and say, why is this happening? And why is it so off happening so often? You know? Well, the, I don't know if this comes up in any of the stories that your students make, but the problem is usually because it's done by someone who has not been the victim of sexual assault, likely will never be, is not in the kind of demographics that are usually molested. And it's just like a kind of a shortcut to, sh to shock the audience. Like even in Watchmen, which is one of the sacred cows, ultimately the main purpose of the rape scene is to show that the comedian was an absolutely terrible person despite being a patriotic superhero and to complicate the murder mystery by adding to the number of people who would rightly want him dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel like that works for me in the sense of how you just described it, that there are people like him uh, that, that, I don't know, especially when you look at like the things that were discovered after Me Too and and people like like uh, Harvey Weinstein, you know, he's a guy who was protected because he worked for the government, you know, and he was never going to get in trouble for that. But um, yeah, I mean, this is a tough issue. It's 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 always hard to look at one book, and 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 it's hard to look at one book and say, you know, is this valid or not? Because then you have to step step out and look at it again as like i said is this happening all over the place and it can be a sort of like lack of just you know empathy or imagination which i think was what you're talking about it's just like a knee-jerk response it's like well i know she'll get raped that's really bad you know yeah. um it's like well can't can't she have anything else to happen else happen to her it's like but uh I imagine things like this come up in some of your student stories. And for me, because I am an internet personality-ish with a lot of hot takes, I can mm -hmm. make all these complaints about bad stories. But for you, you're in a much more important and constructive position, as well as a sensitive one, because you don't want to chase away a student by telling them their work is shit, even if it is. Or inappropriate or whatever. Um, I will say that, yeah, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. It, it, it has, I think it's happened occasionally once, twice, three times where someone has had a situation like that, where I said, do you really need to do that? Do you really need to go there? Um, but what I get is when people are talking about, when people are bringing in, you know, heavy social issues, it's kind of like you said, it's the opposite of what you said. In other words, that, that the, the, these people are, are someone who, these people have often experienced these traumas, have seen or have seen them up close. And the, the story is sort of them trying to, you know, make sense of it, um, get their head around it, understand it, you know, or even just to come out the other side of it, you know, having worked something out. I had a gal take a class for me early on when I was in, in, uh, in LA, probably around the same time you were. And she, 
she took the, she wanted to do a story about a breakup that she had. And it, it had been an off again, on again um, thing. And she just felt like, she just felt like she was, she didn't realize like kind of how he was stringing her along and not kind of giving her sh straight answers about what was going on between them. And, you know, it, she would come in with story stuff and we had this like sort of back and forth about, you know, my feeling is if you want to do autobiography, do autobiography, don't, don't fictionalize it. You know, you want to change people's names and stuff. Okay. That's different. But, um, uh, I said, you know, if you want to do your story, do your story. And about three quarters of the way through the class I was talking about. So then, you know, you can, you know, make photocopies, you can make, put in a mini comic out of it. And she just looked at me and said, I don't, think I want anybody else to read this. And I was like, wow. I said, really? She says, I, I think I did this for me. And I was like, that's it. You, you're, it's your story. You, you got to do it, you know, what you feels right. But that was a, she was, again, she was working out some of her thoughts and feelings about this through the medium. And in a lot of ways that just shows that, you know, what comics is capable of when, when it's, in, in yeah. that it can ha that can be used for that not even and not even bringing the story out into the world you know well it speaks to comics as a medium having strengths that are unique to it because mm -hmm. even though a lot of people approach you see comics as like a means to get an illustrated spec strip with more control mm -hmm there are also those of us who wanted to do comics for comics sake. I'm not judging anyone for doing, for picking anything. You should do what you feel is the best choice. Mm -hmm. Just that I see something like recent, the David Aha Hawkeye stuff and the way mm -hmm. those comics were laid out and how they used the advantage of it being a page broken up into little boxes perfectly mm -hmm. to, to create character. I haven't seen the show yet. I know that AHA was not credited, much less paid for it, his work. I, he, I think he's in the thanks where they thank the, the, the artists and, and, and people who's, uh, who they're not giving any money to. Um, I'm trying to think of who said this. It might've been, I think it was Jim Starlin talking about, you know, Marvel versus DC. And he says, well, Marvel, you know, basically they take your stuff and do whatever they want with it. And if you want, if you make a big stink about it or you talk about it in the public, they throw a few thousand dollars at you, uh, guilt money, you know. Or Morality payments. <laughs> or at least the, the appearance of such, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, say what you will about DC Comics, but that like, I met Len Wein and, and he said that just the, the money he made from them um, using, what is his name? Lucius Fox, is that the Morgan yeah. Freeman? Yeah, he said he put a down payment on a house with that money, Yeah, you know, so. Well, it's, yeah, but in this, have you seen any examples recently of people doing like, medium transcending, medium defying work with comics themselves. There's, I'm, I'm not reading as much of that much of it, but I, there's a, there's an, a, a, a real, it's pretty solid uh, stream of experimental comics happening out there. Um, and I, what I mean by that is that, you know, they're surreal, or they're, um, they're using the medium in really unusual ways in terms of framing things. Um, they're often more using sort of iconography, almost like the way Scott McCloud talked about it in understanding comics. Um, and, uh, and I'm such a narrative person that I don't, 
Um, I don't sit down and go, oh boy, I can't wait to get me some experimental comics. But I have bought some of them and I've been impressed by by some of them, especially the ones that have like a real, um, uh, uh, where their, their skills are really there. And, you know, and that seduces me, right? Their, their, their ability to do this stuff that I look at and, and I'm fascinated by it, I'm willing to... Um, uh, sort of go in a place that's outside my comfort zone. Um, so, uh, and I, it, it, it's, it's, you know, there's not a lot of people who are seeing that. That's, you'd have to go into a, uh, a store like, uh, names keep falling out of my head. Um, there's a, there's this, a great comic store in Silver Lake and I'm blanking out on their names. Um, here in LA. And then um, I think it's Desert Island Comics in Brooklyn. There's another, there's another really, really um, uh, indie alternative comics friendly uh, store in Brooklyn where they're getting these, these, these uh, comics, but they're, they're, they're not out. I think you're, you're, you're going to see them at maybe some of the independent, I should say, alternative comics uh, uh, convention like MoCA in New York, or like the uh, um, LA, no, the, the LA Comics Fest. Well, I'm sorry, I sound like I'm, I'm losing all my marbles here. It's understandable, um, especially given the state of flux a lot of conventions are <laughs> in these days. True, uh, SPX in, in uh, outside Washington DC is another one. Um, so there's these, these place, there's these conventions that are not for, you know, mainstream comics, but are for the alternative stuff. And you will see some of this experimental stuff there. Um, uh, so let me drop some names. Silver go, Sprocket is, huh. a, is a publisher. Um, uh, Koyama. Annie Koyama, who runs it, I think she's technically that she stopped publishing, but that her her line is still out there um, to buy. Uh, and uh, well, it's we, we can I'll, go I'll back think, to if this. I think, yeah, if I'll think of them, I'll I'll I'll, I'll pipe up. But there, it does seem similar to the notion of doing comics as a spec strip that the I, comics are like the cheapest and most immediate visual medium for expressing these kind of ideas. It's a good point. Um, you know, if, if you think of the other mediums, I mean, animation is just, you know, I have a lot of friends who are animators and it's not like you can say, Oh, I'm going to do my own animated short. You know, it, it's it's just so labor intensive. Yeah. Um, it's easier to make a feature film, you know, probably you can because you can shoot it with your iPhone, you know, than to make you know five minutes of, of animation or something. So, um, but comics, you're right. Comics is accessible. It's cheap and it's easy to, you know, it's it's not hard to find. And like the fact that it's it lingers on each image can be part of the appeal. And there are some things that I feel are hard, harder to do in animation and impossible to do in live action. I'm thinking like how you might adapt, say, the some of the art of Bill Sienkiewicz on New Mutants and Electra mm -hmm. Assassin, because that guy is just, his work is so experiment was so experimental and wild mm -hmm. and you can see yeah. things like with warlock who's basically a mass of circuitry who <laughs> cha literally changes shape panel to panel um have you ever read straight toasters no i've been looking for that it's on the list it's i went back a few years ago and read it and it's weird that bill has not written anything else Straight Toasters is brilliant. I was absolutely blown away by, I'd really forgotten what I thought of it. And I think it was, I also was probably in a better place to really, you know, get all of what was going on in it. 
but it's really experimental, but there's a real strong story there. And it's like Sienkiewicz at his finest. Um, it's definitely a lost gem. I don't even know if there's a, I don't even know if there's a trade of it. I don't know if it's ever been collected. I went, I think I, I did. I went and bought the four, you know, sort of prestige format um, comics. And I, now nah, maybe there must have been a, a collection of it. But with in any case, it's so worth getting, and it's uh, um, it's a good example of someone you know, like you said, taking the medium. His stuff is very graphic. Um, you know, if you look at the actual artwork, you know what he put. He he's he's using like a toothbrush to spray ink in different places. He takes a, a, a um, uh, an exacto blade and he'll cut scratches. Into the into the paper itself to make a pattern, um, and you know it probably breaks a lot of crow quills and you know other things to to uh, to do it. And he's multimedia, you know, so he'll have some some you know some ink, some some you know watercolor or some you know I don't know if it's gouache or or acrylics, but it's opaque you know colors that you see. It's it's he's yeah he's he's uh, He's a unique one. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like he does a lot of sequentials anymore. Like a lot of artists, they make more money through like individual illustrations or covers or commissions, or in the case of a certain Green Lantern artist who's come up way too many times these days, white nationalism. Mm -hmm. Oh shit. Yeah. The, the, I, it's a real weird thing that some of these great artists are basically making a living doing commissions. Um, so I, if you, you know, sometimes on Facebook, not on Instagram, I think on Facebook, wherever I, I see Art Adams stuff that's that's being posted, and it, you know, they're they're all commissions. And I mean, I don't know what he makes, but he probably makes a couple of thousand to do a spread, you know. Um, and so, you know, I we miss out on on having these guys, you know, um, do their work. But like, you know, who can blame them? You know. Uh, it, yeah, it's definite. Well, so much of art it in comics is linked to the production and the material processes that shape it, and that's been something I've had to wrestle with as someone who does this as a hobby because like if you put pour so much into a page and have so many hats as a comic artist setting up a scene and laying it out by panels and drawing and inking and coloring each panel and then you see the kind of returns for doing that it's easy to lose hope that this will become a, a career yeah i mean um uh you know, I mean, this is just popping into my head, but um, I've been having a couple of conversations recently about the enormous amount of web comics that there are out there. And um, uh, Tapas is a is a, a host site for for bazillions of uh, of web comics. It although... has great web comics such as We Are the Wirecats. Yes. <laughs> yes. There we go. I didn't know you were up there. That's good. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't a lot of the stuff there sort of manga or manga style? It is because, well, it's similar to Webtoon. I believe it's a Korean company that uses the oh, really? format that pioneered of that kind of vertical scroll, which I found okay. to be extremely useful. And it is also somewhere that, that anyone can publish, but of course the algorithm is going to favor those who already have followings. Yeah, the, it's still it's still nice to hear that you're on a platform like that, you know. Um, and uh, you know, webtoons is just they're so big and so huge in in in, in South Korea. I actually don't know how. Uh, how well that they're how much they're appearing in other countries like are they in any other asian countries but they're they, they have offices here in la and they're they seem to be you know they've been hiring for the last uh, year a fair amount of people um 
but it's huge. So it's a, the reason I brought it up is because you were talking about like, you know, making a living or just like you said, putting so much of your blood, sweat and tears into make something because it's so labor intensive. Um, but, you know, the web comics model is, is it's just, The weird thing about it is there's probably tens of thousands of web comics out there in English, right? I would not be surprised if that's that's accurate. But you know, the amount of them that let's not even say make a living, the amount of people who can just get a fair, a decent amount of money uh, out of you know their com putting their comics online is really, really small percentage-wise, you know. So you know what it's the it's the the trade-off you know do you do you you know that maybe you won't have a huge audience but you may have you know you may have better than than no audience and you got to balance that with your life right like are you gonna you know do you want to do this as your part-time thing or yeah you know what do you want to do well I do hope for the kind of fully automated luxury communism that I was promised by stuff like Star Trek, where <laughs> the technology is advanced so that we don't have to constantly be producing. But I fear that the people who own the means of production now are going to just find more ways to extract value from it than there already are. So or we could move to Canada where they, they, they give, uh, where you comics artists can get funded for their projects really? by the yeah they they're the the arts are very supported in in canada so that um for example um tcaf which is the big convention in toronto um a lot of my alternative comics friends say it's their it's their favorite convention but it's done in tandem with the library system there and it's free so it's the opposite of what you just said, right? Like, you know, how much more money can the comics industries extract from us? You know, I mean, the prices of comics have just kind of gone up and up and up so much in the last just five years. And you go to Canada and they're like, hey, how about a free comics convention? Sure. Well, I won't pretend Canada is without its own problems given how they too have a crazed right-wing movement that, are against a prime minister who's ultimately just a bloodless centrist. I, I did not, I have not heard much about them having, a, a, being another country with a, a, uh, a super right wing. The uh, stuff about vaccines with the truckers protest. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. You know, but, I, it's funny. I, I don't want to look at it's, it doesn't sound, I understand that it sounds like something that is scary to say the government is requiring you to, to, to get a shot, right? Whether you like it or not. Um, but, you know, it, it's like you're, you have to get a license to drive a car. You have to, um, I don't know, take a urine test if you're, you know, if you're getting a, a job where they want to know if you're on drugs or not. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but, you know, it just comes a point where it's like, look, people are dying. And if you can't see that and you can't see that there's millions of other people who've been inoculated who are not dying, like, you know, what do you do? I, well, I, again, you have I, I a background in studying conspiracy theories. You worked on <laughs> the big true. books. You were on Jesse Ventura's show. And yes. now conspiracy theories have not only exploded, but they have with through QAnon, this <coughs> kind of shared cinematic universe where all the different conspiracies merge together. There's a, it, I forgot, I've read it in a couple of different articles about conspiracy theories. I think one was in Wired, one of them was in The Atlantic, I think. And they talked about the fact that once you start getting the mindset of a conspira conspiracy theory about one thing, you start to see conspiracies all over the place. And so that's what you're talking about. It's like, well, you know, uh, uh, um, they can't make me get vaccinated. Trump didn't, you know, uh, didn't lose the election, um, you know, and on and on about, you know, 
whatever uh, conspiracy theory there, you know, or, you know, racist uh, beliefs that they have are going on. And it's weird because I just thought of this this week. Like, what do you, how, how do you frame that? How do you look at someone like that and say, if you, if you could say to them, you know, maybe you, maybe this is a problem if you look at it this way. It's like, if everything you believe you're in, um, is based on what you're hearing from a minuscule percentage of the people who are involved with this or knowledgeable about it. Doesn't that strike you as a weird coincidence that you're always with the 0.5, you're always with the 0.001% of people who are spouting this theory where 99% think that that stuff's horse shit? So. So we've talked a lot about the comics and the forces around comics that Mm -hmm. make doing comics challenging. And since you teach classes, you don't want to leave your students feeling hopeless about it. No, and I, I, I you know, that you, you, it's like anything, you know, that any art, you know, if you, if you love it and you want to do it, you do it, you know, and you, you can't control whether that will or how much that will go out in the world. Um, there's a lot of luck involved in that. There's a lot of right place, the right time. And it's just, you know, if you love it, you should do it, you know? And I get a lot of people who, you know, really, I get, I get good feedback from my students, but part of it is just because they've really enjoyed the experience of making the comic. It's like, they've sort of been won over, not by me as much, maybe a little bit, but by the medium itself. You know, and so that's great. Well, when I was in your class, it felt like being part of an intense shonen anime training program where <laughs> it was how ha- I was trying to do new things with my drawing and writing and learn this secret forbidden techniques. <laughs> so I will always appreciate that. Well, thank you. You were you did some really interesting and good stuff in the classes. Um, it's funny you, you bring that up. For when I was at Meltdown for a bunch of years, um, uh, Meltdown had had found uh, somehow they had connected up with an organization in Japan that um, uh, they provided. They did these like planned trips to Los Angeles for a whole bunch of arts art schools and manga schools. I mean, these were. Literally, they were schools that was just devoted to manga and anime. So they would bring kids from all these different, a bunch of different schools, and they'd come to LA and they'd stay here for like a week or, or a little more. They, they would make appointments to go to like see some of the like DreamWorks or some of those people. But then they did a, a, a workshop at Meltdown that, that I did with, and I did some usually with a partner. Um, but uh, it was, it was a great experience. Why did I go off on that tangent? You were talking about... I mentioned, I compared me learning from you to a training arc in a battle manga. Right, right. I mean, it was really encouraging to see, you know, how serious these these uh, these students were about, about their work and that they were just there. They're also a very, you know, a fair, I don't know, maybe 40% um, female. You know, um, that's another thing, you, you know, you want to you want to educate the 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 comics, uh, uh, educate anybody about what's going on in the comics business, that there's tons and, and tons of women and girls reading comics. Um, and that's because the, a lot of them are reading manga, a lot of them are reading web comics. So, again, you talk to these guys who, you know, they're only buying comics from the comics shop and they're like. Well, I, I don't know. Are women reading comics? I guess so. I saw one by Squirrel Girl the other day. It's like, yeah, well, maybe you need to open your eyes a little further. Yeah. And Squirrel Girl under Erica Henderson was really good. I didn't read it. I heard good things about it, that it was very funny. It unfortunately ended up as kind of a culture war flashpoint for reactionaries. Really? But- 
yeah, because like the concept is this goofy looking squirrel girl is through through ingenuity and grit able to defeat foes up to and including Galactus and Doctor Doom. Right. Oh, so what, did they have? Don't tell me they had like you know trolls online going. She's not strong enough to to defeat Doctor Doom. Exactly. Oh my god. This is I'm the era where that, that kind of person is a political force. Was that? This is the kind of era where the the battle bo- boards mentality is a political force. Yeah, it's infected everything. So uh, yeah, yeah, frightening. Well, it's good, you know. But still, there's lots of good stuff out there. This is this is a a, a renaissance in in a lot of ways. There's never been this many comics out there for this many subjects, for this many people, for all these different, you know, uh, uh, types of story. There's just, you could almost just, you know, ask, is there a story like this out there? And you can find it if you look hard enough. And I thank you for your role in shaping that through all the classes and work you've done over the years. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't like doing it. It's like I said about comics, right? You know, um, so well, thank you. To wrap up, you can check out Jim's links in the comments below. Thank you so much for being on. It was great talking to you again, Jim. All right. Always a pleasure, Neil.